Welcome to Samsara Audio. This is Matthew. I write at Samsara Diagnostics, and I also host the podcast here at Samsara Audio. I'm really excited today. Um, it's been postponed a couple times, but we're making it happen finally. I've got Minnow Park today on my podcast. I'm really excited to have Minnow. Uh, I met him in the most serendipitous of ways, actually. Um, went to interview for a writer's collective and turns out we're uh, both Presbyterians and uh, ended up just hitting it off and uh, chatting about various things. So uh, we'll get into the writers, writer's collective a little bit, which takes up a lot of uh, Minnow's time and his heart and his energy. Uh, but I just wanted to welcome Minnow. He's a writer, a photographer, and uh, fosters a big part of his life. Is there, a, is there anything you want to add, Minnow, for the audience? Kind of uh, what do you do? What are you about? Yeah. Um... I think if you if you went to any of my stuff, it's I say I'm a coach, photographer, and writer in that order, um, and I will also say I'm a former Presbyterian. <laughs> I think uh, that oh, is you're a, killing me here, bro. You're killing me here. No, uh, yeah. I I I, pr I promise that wasn't wishful thinking on my part, uh, folks. I'm not I'm not pressuring Menno or anything, you know. I'm not going to uh, let him slide on on labeling me in certain ways that I uh, I've, I've been oops. trying hard to uh, think through. <laughs> well, let's well let's hold all our labels loosely because you know I uh, you know I was I was raised Presbyterian, but you know I've never right. I've never quite fit in. Our labels they always um what was that uh what was that old story by uh, Max Lucado where they tried to put the sticker on the on the kid uh, or they they tried to put the sticker on the <laughs> on the guy to label him and the stickers just started falling off like do you remember that story um, no but i haven't heard max lucado in a long time brother that is a <laughs> that's a throwback <laughs> that's a throwback <laughs> so good well Mino, i uh, i know that you have been investing a lot of your time and energy in this project foster this writers yeah. collective and you're kind of going through a time of transformation right now yeah. Um, do you want to talk about kind of what Foster is and um, kind of what's next for for that project? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Foster is a good place to start. Um, it's a writing collective writing collective that I've been a part of, and I've been a part of it since like maybe like end of twenty twenty ish, mid twenty twenty. I remember when it was like those pandemic years, so everything sort of collapses together. But and it's and it's gone through a lot of iterations. I personally love Foster for uh, two reasons. One of them being that I found them when I wanted to get better as a writer. And that means a lot of things in sort of the online writing world. If especially like, you know, knowing that you have a Substack, you go to Substack, uh, their main site and you ask them, how do you start a newsletter? And their advice is a very specific kind of advice that caters to a very specific person and worldview. And there's a whole cottage industry out there, I think that it tries to um, market themselves that way as well. And usually it's, to me, they're mistaking writing for copywriting um, and marketing for actually, <clears throat> for actual literature or writing. And so when I found Foster, um, it was really cool. It, it just started. It was such an interesting project of starting uh, with helping people get edits from a Google Doc. You can get comments from people who are doing editing, but it's went through a bunch of evolutions. And now it's really about how do we use writing as a way of self-development, sense-making, actualization, like writing as a form of trans transformation. And I think that practice of writing has been such a core way of me making sense of myself, making sense of what I've been going through, like you said, with uh, my sort of deconstructing and reclaiming of my faith and reckoning of my faith, but also connecting with people as well. I think just the way that I met you and the things that I wrote and you reading it, you probably know me in this specific way better than some of my family would, you know? And so writing has been this really cool way of doing that. And I've uh, just been really lucky to have found them in this really, um, f like, formative time and being a coach uh the role that i play with them is sort of is sort of helping uh writers on their journey and and coaching with them and holding that space for them and figuring out what that community and stuff like that would look like and so um 
yeah, so on that like sort of writer's collective way, it's one thing that I really love. On a second way, it's such a parallel to what I always wish church would be. I always wish wish church would be this decentralized self-development, like deliberately developmental organization that has a emergent purpose that co-creates that purpose together, that doesn't have power, that tries to eschew power and hierarchy for openness and collaboration and conversation and do something that is beneficial, really beneficial and meets people where they are. (laughs) And I think good religion and good churches aim to do that. But why I say I am a former Presbyterian and all that, like it's just the power structure and the institutional structure that is just so, um, it's in it. It's, it, you can't change that out of there. And I think Foster and its organizational, um, the way that it is organized, the way that it wants to move through the world, the way that we interact together as a team and what um, it means to be co-owned and all that's and, and owned by the people, a part of it, like that is to me, my church. And the people that I meet um, aren't necessarily the dogmatic, orthodox, you know, Presbyterian, tulip, loving people, but they are my people and we resonate on a soul level together. And there's so much solidarity and um, love between us. And so that is my long, long answer to why foster. But I think it does dovetail nicely with um, what I wrote about, why you and I met and why we have a lot to talk about (laughs) regarding all of this stuff. So yeah. I guess I'll stop there. Well, I think I think it's interesting that you I, I think this speaks to what the passage of time can do to a community because if you throw back to kind of the original genesis of Presbyterianism, mm-hmm. Presbyterians are the OG decentralized church. Is like the, I mean, well, they're in Protestantism, like you you look at Presbyterianism, it's this very much it's this very bottom up organizational structure where instead of the um instead of the bishopric structure where you have the archbishop and the bishop Mm -hmm. and the bishop appoints the priest in your church and you have the episcopal hierarchy instead with the presbyterianism which was extremely popular with those uh you know backwoods uh scottish folk who are very scrappy (laughs) and live in the highlands and have want nothing to do with authority um they were like no we'll just elect our own leaders We'll just get together and decide who we want to be in charge, and um, we're just going to elect them. And uh, if we don't like them, we'll vote them out of office and and uh, and pick new leaders. And so I think it's what's interesting. And this is a, a you know not saying like this is not an altar call to come back to Presbyterianism, but I'm <laughs> I'm observing that it is it is interesting of this institutional drift because I do think Presbyterians are known for being highly bureaucratized, being very like, you know, they know yeah. Robert's rules of order, like yeah. the back of their hand. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I mean, th- that's I mean, interesting yeah. to me. That's really, yeah. I'm, I'm completely ignorant to the history of um, my, of Presbyterianism. And, and so I'm, I'm more than happy to be educated and completely uh, rebutted by anything that I'm saying. And I mean, for the record, I'm, I live in New York and, the church that I attended for almost a decade was uh, a PCA church. And, you know, we love Tim Keller as much as we love the Trinity, you know, and Redeemer was such a formative thing for me, uh, church growing up and stuff. And so it was a deep camp of like reformed Presbyterian faith. And the book of church order was just as important as, you know, the Bible and the way that we sort of govern church. And so, you're right. I think when I think about the BCO and stuff, it's like there is a bureaucracy, there is a hierarchy and people you answer to. But it's cool to think that in the Scottish Highlands, you know, they just figure things out over a glass of whiskey, I guess. That's, a, you know, over a glass of scotch. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, we're not going to let those uh, those British colonizers, uh, you know, t- put a put a priest in our parish. We're gonna we're gonna break away and pick our own leaders. You know, like this is why it's this is why I think you're kind of like OG decentralized, um, and we lose. There's a way in which there's a way in which we lose some of that revolutionary spirit that is 
it's painful to watch and it produces experiences like um like the one that i i think you might be having um so just to kind of like go deeper here in this conversation yeah, yeah. Uh, you you wrote you wrote a piece that you put out yesterday called the system was built this way um and it was pretty much at least kind of my read on it and i i really appreciated it was that you've had doubts about your faith, but you feel like you didn't need to feel so bad about those doubts mm-hmm. um, that, that pe- people may like, it's, it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to, to work on and have questions in this kind of dynamic process of uh, being a follower of God. And that uh, I, I really appreciated the way that you pointed out that the reason that, people who have questions and doubts are made to feel bad about themselves a lot of times is because the reality is that everybody has those questions and doubts and people, but most people are too afraid to kind of sit with them and to really just be open-handed and genuinely wonder there's this human desire to just snap the door back shut again and be like, no, I can't let that out. I can't let, I can't even consider those things because it's too dangerous for yeah. me to think about. And so I'm, I'm curious kind of where, where did that journey begin for you? Where did you start to ask those questions maybe were um, felt, maybe felt bad about having them and, and then how did you learn to start giving them space? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I love what you took away from it. And I think that um, the piece in the piece, I tried. It, it took me a long time to write this piece, and part of the reason it took me long was because I didn't want it to go down to the level of, oh, I just didn't like the church I grew up in. Like they were backwards people. Like it's such an easy way to um, say things and make yourself feel better and be superior about it, and um, that's just not helpful for anybody. Like if anything, there's empathy and compassion needed in, in what that looks like. And I think the empathy that I have, one, is that I grew up in a, a Korean church, a Korean immigrant church. Mostly my parents were immigrants that came here and, and in Jackson Heights, there was this big church and everybody there, all the Koreans sort of got together. And Sunday was the one time they were able to not try to speak English. They could eat, they could chat with their friends in their own language, eat their own food, you know, and, and, and come together in this way of faith. And so many people there just wanted some kind of comfort and certainty in an uncertain world that they were there for their kids and the promise of America and all that kind of stuff that brought them, you know, over to a foreign land, but they wanted comfort just as any human would want. They wanted some kind of certainty. And I think faith and the way that, um, Orthodox faith or or Christian or you know reform faith and sort of theology gives you is a sense of certainty that sort of fundamental certainty of this is the way the world is this is who I am in this world this is who God is and this is how I make sure everything is okay um, and anyone who doubted that and questioned that they didn't only question it on an intellectual level they questioned it on an existential level to the person that were asking that question too. And what I wanted was to be seen and have a safe space to wrestle with these questions, just like I wanted that in the rest of my life with my parents. <laughs> but they didn't know what that meant. They didn't know what safe spaces and empathy and all those kinds of things meant. And so the church was just sort of another fractal of what that looked like. And because they didn't know how to hold that for themselves, it was hard for them to hold it for anybody else. And so my role out of that was just to suppress. I w- I'm a very much, I'm a very good hider and suppressor. And so everything is okay on the outside, but everything is still brewing on the inside. And I think I doubled down in many ways. And I don't think it really showed up much because I doubled down on the certainty they gave me. And I remember high school being, listened to all of John Piper's sermons on Romans. I, I went deep into sort of like reform faith and Calvinism and all that kind of stuff. And then it really wasn't until the pandemic when everything blew up and whatever artifice and facade I had to hold on to um, erupted 
really, um, that I didn't start really asking those questions. But I think they were always lurking underneath whatever it is that I believed. It was just easier for me to hide it than it was for me to bring it up. I don't want this question to be too distracting, but I'm just genuinely curious. Did did not physically going to church during the pandemic have an effect on that? Like, was that kind that's of a, a catalyst or do you think that's that that was a good question? That's such a great question. And it definitely, definitely did. I think it's one of those, like, I mean, right before the pandemic, I was deep in leading the music ministry. I was on the diaconate team at one point. I was a pillar. I, I, I was there at the first service. I launched the church together. Like I was a, I was a pillar of what that church was about. And then we sort of stopped it all. And my Sundays would start at 8 a.m. It won't. It would go to 2 p.m. And Sundays was not a restful time. But as soon as I could rest, <laughs> as soon as I didn't have to do all that, and sort of had this forced boundary, right? One of my favorite quotes ever is, boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and me at the same time. And you can be a person, but it can also be a job or a thing in your life. And once a boundary was set between church and me, <laughs> and I learned how to love and in that boundary, and it was a forced boundary, and it was a horrible, like, you know, it was a really, it was a pandemic. But when that boundary was set, I was like, whoa, was I really loving myself at this point? Like, is this the best way? Was this the most healthiest relationship? And that was definitely one of the catalysts. And then it was probably the murder of George Floyd and the reckoning of all of that and race reckoning and that race reckoning and, the, and you know, what Black Americans feel and then what Asian Americans feel. And then I was like, God forbid, literally God forbid, does this reach my faith as well? And it sure does. And so it sort of went from this pandemic to this tragedy to empathizing with people, empathizing with my people, and then coming to me and, my, and on a soul level. And so in all those ways that reckoning was happening, but all that happened at a distance with church where I was not so busy to even ask these questions. I had breathing room to ask the question. So yeah, I appreciate that question. That's very, very apt. Yeah. I think that we can be kind of consuming ourselves in order to avoid ourselves. Yes. Like, like completely absorbing yourself in some sort of activity so that you can avoid having to confront your own particularity in all of its nakedness um, to kind of make those voices go away because, oh, I can point to my responsibilities. I can point to my roles. Um, yeah, I think that uh, uh, Sartre has a word for this. Um, uh, bad faith. That's the, mm. that's the term that he uses. It's bad faith to try to disappear into your role mm. um, because it's you're trying to pretend that you perfectly fit into this box. And the reality is that you don't. And there's something that you're afraid of because it doesn't fit in that box. Yeah. So I think I, that sounds to me like something that was going on and then being cut off from that just forced you to have to confront yourself. And I think a lot of people experienced that during the pandemic, actually. I think a lot of people re yeah like reckoned with different relationships and stuff in their life you know and, and I don't know I think there was a contingent of people who were holding their breath to go back to the way it was before but the pandemic for me outside of just even this reckoning was my own professional work as a photographer I was only a photographer before the pandemic and I lost about I want to say like $80,000 worth of work in a week when New York shut down and that blowing up and having to put, bring that back together, a part of me asked, like, do I want it to be exactly the way it was before? Or can I reimagine what that looked like? And so the pandemic was this big, out of my control explosion that once I picked up the pieces and put it back together, I realized, oh, I have much more agency and um, permission to do things rather than what, what has been given to me even something as sacred as my faith um, that I had since I, that, that I was born into. You know, I, I feel like the, what I'm hearing from you and the details, I definitely recognize both myself and other young men specifically mm. and from the reformed community, just because of there, there's this pattern that gets repeated over and over again of um, learning ideas and arguments and sort of mastering rhetorical strategies and bodies of work and then sort of zealously championing those things and that accrues 
um, social recognition and value, and it starts to become an, something you can get addicted to a little bit, um, especially if you're better at it than the other people around you. It can really, um, it can really, it can really go to your head and start to kind of warp and shape how you how you derive meaning and how you wow. get validation from other people. Um, yeah, I can I, I can resonate with that a lot and i've I, i've had to i've had to work through things too myself i mean i i think that as i was kind of joking earlier about the about the the kid who gets the stickers put to him and they they kind of fall <laughs> off i think i've been i've been kind of living my entire life like trying to wash stickers off of myself or tr- uh, maybe mm-hmm. even trying to wear as many stickers as possible where you're like you can't wear those stickers together like yeah. you know i'm just like well just watch me i'm covered in stickers now what are you yeah. going to do about it um <laughs> all of these all of I, I liked to be kind of the coincidence of a bunch of incongruent identities and I think that that was kind of a way of slipping by mm. of like, I could always kind of point to another identity um, that I had and I could, and I could always kind of, I was okay with them not fitting together though. Um, and I think that that was part of what kind of has kept me going Yeah, is the ability that I don't, I don't feel the need to make them all fit together that um and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm talking about myself you know, we'll get back no, to I love you know, it. chatting about your story too. But I mean, I see, I, I'm the guy who grew up reformed and yet went and studied postmodern philosophy and, and writes about that and then got into studying Buddhism and now is studying psychoanalysis. And all of these sort of things are just like uh, sort of anathema. Yeah. And, and yet to me, they've only fed my faith. And so, yeah. yes. And Friedrich Nietzsche was the same way for me. When I read Nietzsche, I was like, this is. I, this is such a breath of fresh air um, to my to my own faith, and so I've I've constantly struggled with the the stable answers have never brought me security. Yes, I've had, but the continual pursuit and and just the wrestling has been the thread that kind of binds it all together. Yeah, that's so beautifully said, man. And I think I, I want to come back to what you just said. Um, but something you said right before that really resonated with me about how you got how you slipped by. And I basically just put on a cloak and hid everything underneath a rug or under or just put on a smile because I was good at putting on a smile and I was good at playing the part. Um, but I remember reading um, a Richard Rohr book and he says it in multiple places, but he broke down the etymology of religion as religio. And ligio is the uh, the uh, root word for ligament. So it's re-ligament. So religion's r- role in society is to realign us to what really matters. And it blew my mind to think of it that way, that church and religion isn't something that there is a Bible verse to say, thou shall make a church in every city and blah. You know, there isn't something. Like, but why do we have that? It's because it's a, like we are... Um, we want a routine, we want to practice, we want to come together and have a ritual around which we could be realigned to what matters to us, to our spirit, our community, to the world, to creation, realign us and then go back out to do the thing that we need to do. It's sort of like a chiropractor or something, right? Like they set your back and then you're off to do what you what you need to do. Um, and I love that because it it made me fall back in love or made me at least look at religion and the institution of it to see, Oh, here's what good religion and healthy religion can do. And it just, and it's not about abolishing that and, uh, and getting rid of it, you know, and, and my need to hide was my reaction and my way of surviving in a culture and in a uh, surrounding that didn't know how to realign me. It was trying to put me into a box to your point. And so I just fit into that box and let all the other parts sort of dangle around without any alignment, you know? So I, I, I appreciate what you're saying about how you, how you sort of slipped away. And I think the way that, um, the thing that I appreciate, even in our couple conversations together, and this podcast is sort of a way for me to even ask your side of it and, and, and learn from me is 
the way that I am moving through this deconstruction and reclaiming and reconstruction of what I'm doing is very uh, emotional and more somatic and more experiential with the clients I'm working with, with the writing I'm doing with Foster. It is not in this, what I take as a much more rigorous and proper and correct way that you do with with study and academia and like the way that you are approaching it in this in like beautifully intellectual way i just do not i just do not have that like i'm interested in a lot of things but i just do not have that part of me to be that like intellectual academic investigator i'm much more go with my heart go with where i am and, and what i'm what i'm feeling and i think like christian mysticism and mystery and uh, yeah, this mystic nature of Christianity helps me unlock so much more and break open this box that we were trying to be fit in. And so much of that is being comfortable by, with saying, I don't know. And so much of that is being comfortable saying, the light will shine into this dark part of my life. And with humility and with honesty and gratitude, I will show to the people who deserve to see it and create that space for me, I will show my shadow. And the light came into the world and the darkness cannot overcome it. And in that space together, I will grow and, and, and experience God directly and experience God through people. And when I see my, my faith and the way that I move through and the way that I reclaim what I believe as a Christian through that lens of experience, through the lens of exposing shadow, of melting ego, of going to my true self, as Merton would say, the theology is almost the mood point. Like, it's cool. Like, it helped give me the guardrails of what I needed. But to sit and argue about that, to sit and argue about all those things, and, and Buddhist, really? It's demonic. It's, you know, and then just labeling and putting these things on there, to me, it's just such a waste of time for people who are just scared to get into the darkness, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and are so scared of uncertainty and don't feel comfortable with mystery, but God is a mystery. And there's a quote that I quote in my essay. Um, Pete Holmes is a uh, comedian and a questioning Christian who is pretty amazing when he talks about it. He quoted somebody that he met who said to him, God is the blanket. We, put over the mystery to give it a shape. God is the blanket we put over the mystery to give it a shape. And I thought that was such beautiful poetic way of describing something where we don't know so much of what we don't know. And if we can hold that mystery and say, God is God and I am me, I feel so much more comfortable in that. That gives me actual, actually so much more certainty than not. And so I feel like I'm sort of going on and on here about that, but um, yeah, I'm approaching this in this way. And, and that's sort of the, the North star that I have. And I'm curious to hear how that lands with you, especially as a person who, yeah, I feel is so rigorous and, um, so resilient in your academic inquiry about this stuff too. Well, I, I hope you know that kind of what goes out on the internet is sort of bubbling up from kind of the surface. And I definitely have much, I have or reoriented myself in the way that you kind of describe where I don't get into the debates anymore about yeah. supra and infralapsarianism and, and all these things. Like I could, I could, I could successfully impersonate any person in on any side of the debate. And so it's not even fun anymore. And so it's like, well, what's the point of that? That's not, that's not the pursuit of God. I mean, that's, that's Phariseeism. Um, you know, not that believing things is Phariseeism, but the idea of kind of like defining, basically spending all of your time developing positions that just kind of uh, define the field of acceptable ideas. And then, and then the inverse of, well, if this is acceptable, then that's not. So, it's it, that's sort of just like defining communal boundaries and accruing social recognition and, and, and institutional power. That's kind of functionally where those go. Um, I think that the, for me, it sort of needs, it's this dialectical movement between um, work, uh, real lived life through relationships with others com and then combined with reflection and so I think that like both of those moves and 
the thing is that with the internet, you only get to see one. You only get mm -hmm. to see what is written and what is shared and what kind of comes out of those reflection moments. But the daily work is I am loving my son and I'm serving my wife and I'm getting to know my family and I'm meeting new people and I'm in, I'm involved at my church and I'm worshiping and I'm having to wrestle with kind of my own heart and, and all of that work goes invisible. And, uh, but I think that that's where the work of discipleship is. Mm. That is absolutely, that's where the taking up the cross happens. That's where the growth happens. Um, so I, I, I think that it's, it's interesting that Jesus's teachings are sort of, um, they're like you can hear him saying one thing sometimes and one and another thing other times because the relationship of discipleship discipleship isn't just one thing all the time it's sometimes there's like a new problem that you have to work on or there's like sometimes the moment calls to speak the truth and then other times the moment calls to give space for the truth to make itself known in time you know like there's jesus says that a um, a, a bruised reed he will not break, you know, like what if, what if speaking the truth in this moment is breaking the bruised reed, you know, mm. what if the bruised reed isn't ready for that? What if the bruised yeah. reed needs space and yeah. you, you, you have to be willing to walk with them over time. And most of the time people are, will are just, um, they're just going to lob a volley over the wall and move on. And they're not willing to stick at, stick it out with somebody and actually go on the journey with them uh, together. And I, I think that's that's where a lot of things get lost is just not being in relationship with people over a long period of time who can sharpen you, love you, support you, call you out, um, just who are there to love you with the full range of what that means uh, as a human being. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I appreciate that, and I, and in no way was I trying to reduce your contribution to this conversation as just you know a talking head and <laughs> what you're doing. And I know that you know you have a full life of things that you're doing as well. But um, to no, that no, I, I used to be like that. You know, that's the thing, though. That's why I bring it up. I didn't think you were accusing me of that. I yeah. I, I just think that that's like the, the the internet does that to people though because yeah. that kind of you you become that person and i think that the community kind of promotes that and then the internet exacerbates yeah. it and so yeah, um, yeah it, it's unfortunate and i think that it it should it should just be said like real life is lived in the real world with real yes. people that is where discipleship happens that god did not die for the internet god died for the yeah. world yeah and it's and it's yeah. And in that, when you live the real world and you're looking at your son and you're trying to do your best theology and the tenets of it, again, isn't really the for, in the forefront of your mind, you know? And I think there is definitely a idolizing of that, that it colors, it colors the world in a way that's so um, specific, but it's, not the colors the world is actually painted in. Like it's not the way that, and so you go to church and it's a very vaunted theological, you know, exercise of conversation. And then you leave and you're like, how does that actually help me? And I, I don't think that's all, of all churches, but I think when you go in too much into the theology and the, and the certainty and sort of the thing that I was trying to say in my piece about, um, the orthodoxy over the ortho orthopraxy, right? Maybe it's another way to say it. Um, there is a disconnect and it doesn't realign people to what matters. Well, we have a view of people, I think, especially in the American church, but I think Christians are just kind of generally susceptible to this, that like, if you believe the right thing, you'll do the right thing. We think that human beings are mm -hmm. fundamentally oriented and driven by beliefs about things. And the the reality is that human beings are not driven and oriented by beliefs. Beliefs are usually a second or third, third order effect of um, our desires and our habits and our practices and our values. Those beliefs kind of bubble up from there. And um, I think that kind of what is happening at the level of um, our dis of decision and of love and of will on a moment by moment basis that is where all of the work is happening. And it's so subtle and it's so difficult that 
we just would rather say, you know what, I believe the right thing, so I'm doing the right thing. Or yeah. um, if we just teach people the right thing to do, they'll do the right thing instead of doing the hard work of figure, figuring out what would be the right thing to do in this moment. And more than that, cultivating being the type of people who would do the right thing in the moment. Because it's really, if you don't know what the right thing is until the moment comes, because every moment has never happened before. <laughs> you know i do i do man and it's like i don't know if i i'm just trying to think of where to like how where to respond and what feels what's the right what's the right way to respond and and what what to talk about but like what you're talking about is like what is the like what are the first principles with which we live our lives and what is the, what is the way that we move through the world that goes beyond just what we've been told to do? Who are we as people aligned, deeply aligned as people and, 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 and our integrity and who we are. And I say that because I think when my deconstruction hit sort of, the walls of what I was taught for me, even atonement theory and the way that we position everything as a death and a price to be paid and a punishment for us. And in this way of retribution um, and justice as retributive justice and not restorative justice to me, there's something which, to me, which honestly, that idea that we are sinful and God saved us and died for us so that God's wrath is poured on Jesus and not us is, as David Foster Wallace would say, the water that we swim in. This is our water. Like there is nothing, it is so pervasive in Presbyterianism, in Reformed theology and to me that is the first principle constriction that i never thought to question but am <laughs> and understanding that it's not this or that that it's it's a both and that that there is that this is included in a way of talking about God and who we are in God. That if God is a mystery and God is the blanket we put over a mystery to give it a shape, that all religion and all language is just a metaphor. And because we don't know what we don't know and what's next, there's different ways of what that could be expressed. And I'm not saying, and even in the Christian tradition, liberation theology, process theology, there's Eastern Orthodoxy, there's Christian mysticism, there's, you know, there's all of it is there. And I think from Luther on and from enlightenment on and scholarship on, like there's a specific way that I've been taught to look at my faith. But when we start from a place of disempowerment of original sin, that Genesis 3 means more than Genesis 1, and we move or, and we move life around there that we're saying we are prone to sin, prone to wander, and we cannot trust ourselves, our bodies, who we are. That creates a certain kind of person, and that creates a certain kind of person that moves in the world. And it taints to me what discipleship means. It taints to me what accountability means. It taints to me what masculinity, femininity, what being a person looks like. Um, and I don't know the answer and I don't know how to explain that better, but that's where that takes me. And so, yeah. Well, I, I am, I really appreciate you saying all those things. Those are really difficult things to struggle with. And I feel like kind of where we're getting to is kind of the crux of where, we probably diverge because I, I don't quite see things the same way. And not that I don't feel the force of kind of what you're wrestling with. Cause I, 
I do feel the force of it. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, as I, as I read Nietzsche, I was forced to, to deal with like, wow, this, you know, Nietzsche thinks that Christianity is this bloodthirsty religion. It's really fascinating. He's like, it's, it's a slave morality. It's about, it's, it's motivated by bitterness and resentment against the powerful. It, it chooses to invert it to, you know, take things that are beautiful and strong and to it, and it exemplifies, it, it raises up ugliness and, and things that are humble. You know, I think that's, that is a fascinating critique of Christianity. And I, and I think that it, you know, to, to simply, um, to simply just wash it to the side is like, oh, I don't think that that's intellectually serious. I think it needs to be reckoned with just like this question of um, does, does the idea of an atonement uh, make sense and not simply does it make sense? Is it moral? And so I think though, that where I'm, where I'm personally concerned of going by following that line is ending up looking kind of no different from exactly what the culture wants you know like like for at least for me where where i end up is like i see folks you know i see folks on the internet who deconstruct as christians and they end up looking you know and they say they're either still christian or that they're trying to become more christian but they end up looking just exactly like everybody else you Mm. wouldn't you wouldn't know what they believe they say all the same things that you hear on uh, you know, MSNBC or something like you could just copy paste mm. takes from the media and from Twitter mm. and put them in their mouth. Mm. And there's, and it's no different. And so for me, where I, where I struggle is I think that, you know, some of where I hear you going is kind of into this. Um, I think that, how would I put it? I think that following the kind of mystical strain that you are, puts you in danger of kind of um, losing the otherness in Christianity, the otherness in God. Because I think that where we like, like at a certain point, it kind of like becomes God is just a metaphor for self narrating our own indeterminacy as human beings, rather than God is um, a force that confronts us. Like, that 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 there's something radically other and inassimilable about who God is, and I think that for me, I come back to Christianity is about a historical narrative and wrestling with the reality of that narrative, which is that God became a human being in a time and a place, and that God died, and that God actually rose again, and that He has a body. And then he's coming back. And that story, whatever my minuscule little story is, finds its finds itself as a part of that larger story. That mm-hmm. I'm not the main character, even of my own story. And that this, like what we're supposed to do is to come back again and again to confront the mystery of how and why did God become a human being who could suffer and die to love us and to, to reconcile himself to us? And why was that necessary? How did that happen? And, and coming back to that, to confront that thing, which is totally other to me, that is, that is the way. Um, What do you think about that? I, I agree. I agree in the sense of like we have to hold that to be true. We have to hold a reverence for God and we have to know that we aren't just like people use the term bypassing a lot now, right? Like spiritual by and they use these words and they think they know what it means, but it's actually just feeding their own ego and they're just looking like you said like everybody else. Um and I think deconstruction is also a really um, laden term because I think it's actually mm-hmm. for me about rebalancing, not deconstructing. It's, it's figuring out where my tension point is, that if I'm going to hold mystery and I'm going to hold tensions within me, I need to find where that point is that I can hold that tension in a healthy way. That s- 
some of the work that a lot of the work that I did this year had to do with dropping in to my body and my feelings. And even now I can say to you that I feel sad and happy. I'm tired, but also curious. I'm hopeful and feel grounded. I'm a multitude of emotions and all of those emotions can be true at the same time. And that is who I am. And owning all of that together is actually what makes me fully human. And I think I can hold different theories and ways that we're trying to express our own selves in this relationship with this cosmic, mysterious, universal, universally vast God and what and what that looks like. And I think even in your example of what pe- how people act and what they do, I agree because it goes back to what we've been told that if we believe the right thing, we do the right thing, right? And, 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 and what we do needs to be done by, do- by becoming the person that does that thing. And I think when, that's where, where my thing about atonement theory comes in is that's what we've been told to believe. And it actually informed us in a certain way that is actually othering people, secular, sacred. You're this, you're that. That every time we talk to someone who's not a part of church, we make them into a project to try to get them into our club, right? And people can tell that the way that Christians want to proselytize or evangelize or what makes a person stand with a sign at the side of a street or in New York be in the car and disrupt a tired group of people's mornings and try to, you know, scream what it is that they're saying. Like all of that to me comes from this place of us and them. There's like this sort of tribalist idea that it comes into. And I think that's what people look at Christianity and see. And then a lot of people who deconstruct overcorrect <laughs> and they just accept everything and they go all the way to the other side and they take the liberal argument because they don't want to take the conservative argument where it's actually not liberalism and conservatism. It's actually just, I don't like the way conservatives look. It's actually, I don't like them as people. It's not about the idea. And they're saying, oh, I don't like them as people. Then it becomes an emotional argument that has nothing to do with the actual tenets of what they actually believe because all the people that I know are really, really um, thoughtful. They hold both to be true. I remember asking my therapist, I said, as soon as the Roe v. Wade was overturned and all that, like, what do you say as a woman? How are you going? How, like, what do you think of? And I know that she's a really strong Christian. And her answer was, it's really, really sad to to think that, you know, babies are like and one side that babies are being, you know, however you want to see and being murdered or killed, whatever that looks like. But also there is the sovereignty of a woman's body that basically men are telling them what to do and that these laws are being oppressed. And like both of those things are sad and you can hold both of the sadness of both sides at the same time. And that was the best answer I could understand because then that means I can grieve with anybody. And grieving with anyone and being in that space to grieve with them in their pain is actually what Jesus did. Jesus grieved with the people who society thought no one should grieve with or be next to. And he did that so much people hated him for it. And they said, why are you even working on the Sabbath? How dare you? How dare you do the thing? And it's like, my people were hungry. Like, what do you want me to do? Like they were, they were starving. Like they, they needed to eat something. And it never mattered of what that looked like. And even Jesus was this countercultural, you've learned this, but I say this. You heard this, but I say to you. And he himself overturned everything that was happening. And I don't think he was ever meant to be this person who we look to to be like everything makes sense with him. It only makes sense in this almost 2000 year hindsight in some way, you know? And so I don't know where I'm really going with what I'm trying to say, but I think, I think at the end of, at the end of the day, I think it's about me rebalancing what that looks like. And even with atonement theory and, and like Anselm, the one who really brought it into the way that we were thinking, he was brought up in a feudalistic society, right? And so all he could think about was in terms of payment and debt and all these ways. And I think, I think there's just different facets of, of what that looks like. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's a critique as much as it's a, and then what? And so what, what other ways can I look at it? I remember hearing someone say about in a Jewish tradition, they take one Bible verse and they just 
one verse in the Torah and they just look at it in every different way. That there's a scholar who wrote a book on 10 chapters of the one of one verse, and each chapter is a different way of it, interpreting that one verse. That seeing it from all these different angles is the way for you to chew and meditate on the on that idea. And I just don't think you go to a Presbyterian church and you tell them that same thing, and they don't want to believe that. They just want to know what they know and be told what they know and just go on their merry way. And I think that's just a constricted life. It's just a very narrow life and not as cosmic as how God actually is. Well, Minnow, I think that I'm going to try to start to wrap things up here a little bit. I try to Please. keep them under an hour, but I think that what is what is clear to me is that you are a co-conspirator, that uh, we are of the same spirit and that we are wrestling with this how do I move beyond this dead intellectualism? How do I move beyond the the coordinates that society has set for me and figure out how to reach out and to actually love people? How do I model how do I model the life of Jesus? Yes. How do I understand the life that God is leading us into in all of its complexity and refuse the uh, refuse to foreclose that? out of fear, refusing to stop short and to settle for the easy answer um, because we want that security that's so tempting to us as human beings. That's very well said, man. <laughs> very well said, Matthew. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it's, I think we are all able to hold multitudes that mm. we can be certain about uncertainty and, I, I forgot where someone said that God doesn't spare us from anything, but he allows us to get through anything, right? He's with mm -hmm. us. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's there with us and, you know, fear not for I am with you. Right. And that God won't spare us, but he will keep us going. And I think we contain multitudes and we're able to wrestle and hold these tensions and not have answers and still be children of God that love God, that understand that we're all okay and everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Well, I think that that was a great way to kind of get the weekend started off. I really appreciate you spending your, your Friday afternoon with me. Um, is there anything that you wanted to share with folks before we kind of ended here? Um, I, I don't know. I think I want to thank you for the space to talk about it. I don't know if this is where you wanted things to go. Which I think it's just where I think the spirit led for me to talk about and have the space to talk about. Um, but yeah, I'm really thankful to Foster to have met you. I don't think we would have met any other way. And so, yeah, yeah I think so. Well, I, uh, I try not to have a specific vision for where these conversations would go. And I am always consistently happy with where they do go when we resist that urge to to knock, to white knuckle and to cling. So thank you for your time, Mino. Thank you, man. Bless you, brother. This has been great. And we will talk again soon. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to Samsara Audio. Um, we I really appreciate your time. I know that you don't have to be here and that you don't have to listen. So thank you for being a part of this conversation and this journey. I'll link Minnow's work in the uh, footnotes to the episode. Thank you and have a great night.